Radio. Conversations with Daniel Noor. Tackling the tough questions on cradio.org.au. Hello, Cradio listeners. My name is Daniel Noor, and when I entered the Catholic Church on September the 21st, 2013, I brought all of my confusion, anxiety, and uncertainty right in with me. As a young journalist searching for the truth, I'll be interviewing an expert on a hot topic and trying to get straight answers on the moral, political, and social issues of our day. I invite you to join me and to have your questions answered about today's tough topics as well. This is Conversations with Daniel Noor. This is the first episode in a series on the plight of the refugee. Our guest today is Julian Burnside. Mr Burnside was made an Officer of the Order of Australia in 2009 for service as a human rights advocate, particularly for refugees and asylum seekers, to the arts as a patron and fundraiser and to the law. As an Australian barrister, human rights and refugee advocate, as well as uh, being uh, quite an author as well, he practised principally in commercial litigation before moving into what he is better known for perhaps today, which is his staunch opposition to the mandatory detention of asylum seekers. He's provided legal counsel in a number of high-profile cases and speaks frequently on this issue. Julian, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi. First of all, if you could let us know a little bit about, I suppose, uh, Australia's obligations as far as international law is concerned to the refugee, and if you could give us a sense of what, I suppose, industry standards are when it does come to the plights, or rather the, the struggle of the refugee. Okay, well, look, there's a number of international conventions to which Australia is a party, which bear on the subject of treatment of refugees. The, the first and most obvious one is the Refugees Convention, which we signed in 1951. But less obvious and arguably uh, of equal importance is the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which we helped to formulate and which we signed in, I think, 1948. And it was an Australian, Doc Evatt, who presided over the General Assembly of the United Nations on the 10th of December 1948 when the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was uh, adopted. Then there's the Convention of the Rights of the Child, uh, the Convention Against Torture, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, and all of these are inter international agreements uh, which we have signed. Now, um, each, each of those instruments gives rise to various obligations. Uh, unfortunately, those obligations are not easily enforced, um, but by signing them, we say, well, this is what we plan to do as a nation. Now, um, Convention on the Rights of the Child includes various provisions such as we won't um, uh, mistreat children, we won't, um, you know, we'll make sure that children are not jailed except as a last resort, things like that. The, the um, Universal Declaration of Human Rights includes, importantly, um, a provision that every human being is entitled to seek protection in any country they can reach, and that is repeated in the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. The Refugees Convention uh, includes as its central obligation that, we, that, that a country will not send a refugee back to a place where they face persecution, um, and the Convention Against Torture obviously involves um, obligations not to torture people 
and torture is um, fairly clearly defined in it. Now, our treatment of refugees um, over the last 15 years at least breaches provisions of each of those uh, international instruments and we continue to breach them. So, for example, um, we have since 1992 had indefinite mandatory detention provisions in the Migration Act. What that says in, in substance is that if a person is in Australia and is a non-citizen, and if they don't have a visa, then they must be detained and remain in detention until they get a visa or until they're removed from Australia. Now, that, is, that has been found by the International Human Rights Committee on a number of times to, involve, to amount to arbitrary detention in breach of Article 9 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. It's arbitrary detention because people are detained regardless of their age, their state of health, um, whether or not they've committed any criminal offence. They are detained merely because they belong to a particular group. Now, I think it's very important for your audience to understand that although since 2001 the liberal side of politics in Australia has referred to boat people as illegals, the fact is they don't commit any offence by coming to Australia without an invitation seeking protection. Um, and and uh, that's, I guess, consistent with the idea in the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights that every person has the right to seek asylum in any country they can get to. So the so-called illegals haven't committed any offence, but we lock them up, and we lock them up indefinitely. And indefinite means exactly what it says. Um, there was a case that came up in 2003. Um, it was a bloke who'd come to Australia as a boat person. He's a non-citizen. He doesn't have a visa, and so he's put in detention. He was initially rejected in his claim for refugee status. He could have appealed, but appealing would have meant another six or nine months in detention and he couldn't bear it in detention. So he said to the government, look, just remove me from the country uh, because the only two ways out of detention are getting a visa or being removed from the country. He offered to sign any document that was needed in order to facilitate his removal. But he couldn't be removed because he's stateless. So this question went all the way to the High Court. The Howard government argued all the way to the High Court of Australia that that man not guilty of any offence, not suspected of being a risk to anyone, could remain in detention for the rest of his life because he was been refused a visa and he couldn't be removed. And the High Court, by a majority of four to three, said that's what the Migration Act means and with that meaning it's constitutionally valid. Now, that probably represents a low point in the mm. jurisprudence of Australia so far as asylum is <laughs> I, I dare concerned. say it might. It's but, horrifying. It's a horrifying idea. But, Mr Burnside, may I interrupt? Because I, I do get the feeling for, for the, I suppose, the clear um, sense that we get that people should not be made to suffer for something that they didn't do. There is still a, a, a feeling of fear in the general public about perhaps the, and I know this to be true because we've had such stringent asylum policies and, and of course, we... We have this insistence on sending the boats back and uh, and protection, border protection. That kind of language has been so often used in this discourse. As you continue, could you please let us know a little bit about contextually, 
Is Australia's response any different to the rest of the world? And if so, how? Uh, yes, it is. It's a lot worse. Um, many countries have signed the Refugees Convention. We are the only country that has signed the convention which has a policy of indefinite detention of people who've come here seeking asylum. Um, the mm. uh, Indefinite. Uh, of course, so, no... indefinite. That is to say, without without specified end. So they could be there for maybe 10 years? Would, would that be possible? I, I think the maximum so far that I'm aware of is someone who is in detention for seven years. Mm. Um, but what's really destructive about it is that no one can tell them when they'll be released. Uh, and it's a, a startling thing, mm. um, but we've provided plenty of test cases for it. It's a startling thing that if you put an innocent person in jail and you can't tell them how long they'll be, in there, be there, it takes between 12 and 18 months for them to go crazy, to fall into hopelessness and despair, and to start either damaging their environment or damaging themselves. And, of course, we've got hundreds of examples of people in detention yes. self, self-harming because they are desperate. And that's exactly what I was going to mention. There have been so many stories, I suppose, that we've heard of uh, asylum seekers uh, in fights, asylum seekers who hurt each other, and then, needless to say, the violence that is, I suppose, done to them. So the, um, the stories we heard about rapes, the stories we heard about um, self-harm that was being inflicted. Uh, can you tell us if any, because of all of this being so heinous, has really any progress been made by our country? Does the increased intake of 12,000, for example, uh, signify that any improvements are being made on our refugee policy? Have we come around in any way? Um, I'd like to answer that in two parts. First of all, stopping short of the announcement the other day that we'll take 12,000 Syrian refugees. Up until then, I would say that we have gone backwards progressively since 2001, um, not least because we introduced a system of um, uh, offshore processing under which people who arrive in Australia as boat people are taken forcibly against their will to either Nauru or Manus Island, which is part of Papua New Guinea, and they're, there, they're sent there for processing, but with a promise that they will never be resettled in Australia. And Nauru and Papua New Guinea are both very hostile to those people, so that even if they're accepted as refugees, they will have to be, they have to find themselves some other country to go to, mm. uh, which is incredibly difficult. Um, in addition, in those places, they are treated very badly. They're held in shocking conditions. In fact, one person who had spent a year working on Manus as a doctor um, told me that um, very quickly he formed the view... This is a person who spent his professional career working in the prison system in Australia, and he's not a bleeding heart. He's not like me. You know, he's, a, he's a fairly <laughs> hardened kind of guy. Um, but he had the opportunity of spending a year on Manus because the pay was good. So he goes there, and within a couple of months he worked out that the conditions in which they're kept and the way in which they're treated on Manus, he said, was a 100 times worse than anything he has seen in the prison system in Australia. Mm. So we, we are treating innocent people a 100 times worse than we treat prisoners. Um, he also said, uh, incidentally, that by the time he finished his tour of duty, he had worked out that the barely disguised purpose of treatment of people on Manus 
was to break their spirit so they would abandon their claim for refugee protection and agree to return to the country that was persecuting them. Mm. Now, that is consistent with things that I've heard from a number of different refugees over the last 15 years, all of them saying in one form or another, in my country, they kill you quickly. In Australia, they kill you slowly. Mm. Now, that's a terrible indictment of what we're doing. And frankly, uh, to get to your original question, I think we are probably the worst in the world amongst those countries that have signed the Refugees Convention. I think we are the only Western country that locks people up indefinitely when they come seeking protection. And we have been conspicuously harsh in our treatment of them, especially over the last 15 years. Mm. It would seem to me that uh, there must be some retreat, if you like, from uh, on a policy level, from, from the harshness that we saw. Is that a totally naive thing to say? And, uh, and, and also, could you uh, give us some sense about just why this policy of stopping the boats is deemed to be so important? If, if you happen to agree that it has any significance as a, as a valid way of, of processing, dealing with, and I suppose saving the lives of refugees, then, then please comment. But otherwise, what, just why uh, at all is stopping the boat significant? Yeah, look, the, the, um, the headline explanation for our harsh treatment of refugees is that we're so worried about people drowning. Mm. I frankly do not believe that, and I don't even think that the um, government believes it when they say it. And the reason I say that is that um, out of our concern about people drowning... If they don't drown, we punish them. Now, hmm. that's not logical. Uh, in addition, our, our response in recent years to boat people trying to seek safety in Australia, our response has been to turn them back. That is to say, uh, we, we literally turn their boats around and push them away, and we're not allowed to know how many of those people drown. Uh, really, uh, I'm, I'm, at the risk of sounding cynical, um, our um, concern about people drowning position is really nothing more than a concern about people drowning in the sight of Australian television cameras. Hmm. We aren't the least bit concerned if they go and die somewhere else. We aren't the least bit concerned if they try to escape to safety in some other country and die in their attempt because we don't know about it. We're only concerned about seeing them die. And you know, at the bluntest, mm. uh, you get to this. If we push them back and if they return to the country that was persecuting them and if they're killed by their persecutors, they're just as dead as if they'd drowned. The difference is that we don't know about it. Mm. It's a very bleak picture that you've drawn of the history that we've had with this, which is so ironic because, of course, we're a nation of um, boat people, as it were. You know, we came by boat. But in any case, Mr. Burnside, not to editorialise too much, this is your view, and it does come, I think, from a, a certain breadth of experience dealing with so many refugee refugees in, in your own right, I suppose, as a researcher on this. Is that correct? Um, yeah, I've, I've appeared for lots and lots of refugees. I've been to many of the refugee uh, camps in Australia and in Nauru. Mm. Um, I think I've got a fair amount of experience with them. 
So then in, in closing, what can we do to help? Is there a way that perhaps we can push back at what seems to be the, the cruelty of the government response or at least have perhaps our voices heard? I would like to think that what was said uh, by our uh, now defunct Prime Minister this week, that we would be receiving 12,000, uh, is a heartening move. But in any case, can you give us some indication of what else can be done? How can we help? Look, uh, to be honest, I... Well... I've tried lots and lots of things over the last 15 years and none of them have worked. So I'm probably the last person to ask what we should do because I get it wrong every time. Um, I, th I think you have but, a very loud voice on the issues. So <laughs> I can't say that none of it's Yeah, I may have a loud voice, but the government's not listening. Um, the Look, I, I, I frankly think both, party, both major parties are locked in on this um, turn back the boats policy, indefinite detention policy, and they're locked in because... At the time of Tampa in 2001, uh, the notion of illegals was coined and Labor didn't contradict that. That happened because, by, by the way, Tampa coincided with September 11. And all of a sudden, you didn't have Muslim, you didn't have terrorists, you had Muslim terrorists, you didn't have boat people, you had Muslim boat people. Mm. Now, of course, we've got uh, boat people and border protection linked in the, in the jargon. So um, people are scared of boat people. And it's ludicrous because these are just innocent human beings seeking safety. We don't need to be frightened of them. But because both major parties are locked in uh, in a ridiculous position, change will only come from the population at large. Uh, so the first thing people can do is make sure that if they ever meet anyone who thinks that both people are illegal or dangerous or a threat, put them straight. They're just not. You know, boat people who have been settled in Australia are typically underrepresented in the crime statistics. They do not break any law by coming here the way they do. They are typically uh, in full-time employment as soon as they're allowed to get a job because these are highly motivated, very brave people who risk their lives getting to safety. These people aren't a problem, they're an opportunity. So everyone who understands this should actually correct anyone else who they hear saying, you know, boat people, border protection, uh, criminals, illegals, etc. Mm. Okay? So make sure people understand the facts. Make sure people understand what I believe to be true, that Australians are decent people. Most, I would say 98% of Australians are decent people who would not willingly see harm done to innocent human beings. And we need to understand that our government is harming innocent human beings and doing it at incredible expense. Um, it, you know, our, our detention system, onshore and offshore, costs about $5 billion a year. Now, that's a, a ludicrously big number, and no one understands it except Gina Reinhardt. Mm. But I've, I've worked out a new unit of measure. We are spending every year on our mistreatment of boat people, we are spending 1 million Geelong chopper rides every year. Mm. It's a lot of money. And for a fraction of the price, we could actually treat them decently. And I think Australians are good enough people that if they're not frightened into mistreating someone else, they will actually treat them decently. And we could do that. And we need to encourage our politicians to do that. Uh, you know, everyone should write to their parliamentarians asking simple questions about this subject, forcing them to face up to the fact that we're mistreating innocent human beings and that is not what Australians do. Mm. Mr Burnside, I, I think you've made it very clear that uh, a public voice that our voices uh, do actually have some kind of weight 
and uh, and we can move government policy. And so for that, we thank you very much for your uh, very informative breakdown of what our obligations are and, and what I suppose our failures are. Um, we thank you very much. It's been a real honor to speak with you today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an episode of Conversations with Daniel Noor. And for more episodes of Conversations and for more talks, interviews and shows, visit cradio.org.au.